So thanks for being here, and hopefully this will be helpful to you in your ministry context. How many of you have preached the Gospel of John in your ministry? Okay, good. And I assume if your hand went up, you've done it kind of sequentially, paragraph by paragraph. Okay, good. So many of you haven't really dabbled. How many of you have never preached anything from the Gospel of John? Okay, just a couple. Good. So at least you're aware of where the book is. It's the fourth one in the New Testament for the rest of you. Uh, since you're staying away from that book for some reason. Um, But as we begin, let me pray, and then we'll start our session. Lord God, we are grateful for this morning. Every single time we're challenged from your word, we walk away moved and encouraged and at the same time convicted. And I I do pray that the same would happen this afternoon, that as we look at your care for your remnant in the Gospel of John, it would encourage us to be faithful, even as we just heard from Pastor John in the Q&A. And that we've been entrusted to shepherd your flock as a responsibility and as a stewardship. And help us to be faithful, knowing that we will give an account when the chief shepherd appears. We pray this to the honor of his name. Amen. Amen. Well, you're welcome to go ahead and open your Bible to the Gospel of John. We are going to look at some Old Testament passages in addition to John. But as you do that, you can make your way over to John chapter 10. And when you look at the Gospel of John, it's kind of feels like you're walking into a museum gallery, and every single time you turn somewhere into a new paragraph or a new chapter, it's as if you're looking at a new panorama, a new portrait of Christ. Beginning in chapter 1, you can see his cousin pointing the finger at him and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And next scene, you see a couple of his disciples leave John and then begin to follow Christ. You look into a different room, and you can see Jesus at a wedding. And you can see him talking to the woman by the, by the well in chapter 4. You can see Jesus talking to the Nicodemus in chapter 3 in the dark, talking about what it means to be born again. In chapter 5, you see him talking to a man by the pool, sick for 38 years. And he just healed him. You imagine the joy, right? Being healed after 38 years, not even being able to walk. And then Jesus tells him what? Don't sin lest something worse should happen to you. What a way to be a downer. You know, this is the first time he's walking in 38 years, and now he's challenging him, stop sinning. Or you can see in chapter 7, Jesus standing up and crying out, I am the water of life, I am the light of the world. You move forward and you see Jesus weeping by the tomb of Lazarus. You see Jesus stooping over his disciples' dirty feet in chapter 13, washing them and telling them this is the model I'm setting for you, that you need to do similar for one another. You see Jesus hanging on the cross, and his final words are, it is finished. Each of those scenes are unique to the Gospel of John, and many more. You see John, writing at the end of the first century, probably between 85 and 95, I lean more towards 95 AD, he is introducing new characters, new discourses, new miracles. There's a new introduction to the story of Jesus in the prologue. He takes us all the way into eternity past, and he entrenches the entire gospel in the Old Testament. 92% of the gospel of John is distinctive from the synoptic gospels. So if you were to do an overlap in content, you'd only have an 8% overlap, and it's worth your time at some point to compare how distinct the gospel of John is. And you have to ask the question in light of that information, what is John trying to accomplish? Why would he write a gospel about 30 years after the others have been written with 92% new material 
in the context of Asia Minor, in Ephesus most likely. What is he trying to accomplish with this book? Now, thankfully, he gives us his purpose statement, right? And you can see that purpose statement in chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, he's been selective. He's going to say, there's so many things I could have written about, but I'm making a decision because these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life or you may have life in his name. So it's pretty obvious he's trying to provoke faith. He's trying to provoke belief as he emphasizes a specific portrait of Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. Twice he mentions belief in his purpose statement. And you, if you've studied the Gospel of John, you know there's a debate about that first use of believe, that you may believe. How do we exactly interpret that? Is this initial belief or is this ongoing belief? Is this evangelistic in its purpose or is this more about perseverance? And there's a massive debate in scholarship about this. Some try to root it in the textual evidence. You can't. The textual evidence is split evenly in regards to whether that's uh, an aorist or a present tense. And so in case that's just a little insight for you, you can chase it down through many commentaries and monographs. But what is noteworthy is that believe is always a verb in the Gospel of John. Secondly, out of its 98 uses, 93 of them have Jesus as the direct object of belief. Compare that with the synoptics. There's only seven times that the synoptics cumulatively talk about believing, and then five of those seven is believing in Jesus. He's the direct object. I'm not saying that the synoptics are not interested in believing in Jesus because that only happens five times. I am saying that John has a unique angle and a unique emphasis by saying it 93 times versus 5 in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can divide the purpose statement into two halves. The first is messianic or Christology. The second is discipleship, where the focus is on Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, and then there's a promise of eternal life in his name. But the second use of believe, believing, it's a present tense participle suggesting ongoing belief. That's the focus there. So that is not debated. So what I think John is trying to do in his gospel through the purpose statement is to provide for us a portrait of Christological discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm calling you to follow Jesus. I'm calling you to believe in his name. If you believe in his name, then you have eternal life. So now there's a promise of eternal life. In chapter 17... We know that verse. Jesus defines eternal life in verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So now eternal life is simply defined as a relationship with God the Father and God the Son. It's knowing two of the three members of the Trinity as listed here. Certainly chapters 14 through 16 develop for us what it means to be in a relationship with the entire Trinity. Each individual member are mentioned distinctly from one another as having a relationship with each believer. You can find that in chapters 14 through 16. But as John defines with the words of Jesus, eternal life, it is to know God. Every single time eternal life appears in the Gospel of John, it's in the present tense. In other words, it's something that you possess today. In the synoptics, eternal life is a future reality. 
it's about living forever. In the Gospel of John, it's about possessing a relationship with God today. John carefully distinguishes between eternal life and resurrection. Let me give you one example. John 6, 54 is a simple verse that clearly delineates between those two phases of our relationship with Christ. Five, the ending of chapter 5 goes deeper into this discussion, but 6.54 says this. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, present tense, eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's your distinction between a present tense reality and a future tense promise. And that is consistent in the Gospel of John. So John's portrait of Christ is one who offers eternal life to those who believe. But the way eternal life is offered is through the portrait of Jesus as shepherd. And that it takes us to John chapter 10. The good shepherd pericope, where Jesus Christ is presented as one who offers eternal life as the good shepherd. So you can take a look at verse 10 of chapter 10, for example. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in verse 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That takes us into the theme of this week. This is the remnant discussion that is attached to Jesus as the shepherd, as the one who confers eternal life unto those who believe. And so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to provide for you five aspects of John's remnant theology. In his gospel, I think there are five aspects of remnant theology. And the first one begins with the promise to the remnant. So the promise to the remnant is found in chapter 1 of the gospel. We'll go back to chapter 10 a little bit later. But for now, go all the way back to the prologue. And John introduces this concept in verse 11. He came to his own. Now, we know that because of the other gospels where it says Jesus came to the sheep of Israel, right? To the house of Israel. He came to, initially, to the ethnic Israel. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. So now we're talking about a subset. To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So now we are introduced into this remnant idea that while he went into ethnic Israel, not all accepted him, but to those who did accept him, he gave them the right to become children of God. That helps us understand this promise to the ones who did believe him. Now, the way the prologue is structured, I am convinced by this argument by multiple scholars, that it's a chiastic presentation of the prologue. This in no way undermines the Christology of the prologue. If you actually carefully walk through it, Jesus, the Logos, being incarnated, still is the focus. But in the middle of the chiasm, you can see that verses 11 through 13 become kind of the central focus. And if you know your Hebrew poetry, you know that the chiastic presentation, whatever's at the center, is the focus. So verse 12 becomes the focus of the chiasm. You became a child of God to the ones who believed in his name. That remnant, a part of the own, the benefit to them, the promise to them, is that they become children of God. It's a promise of adoption 
and sonship. Paul, in Romans 9, picks up similar terminology. We heard the pa- this sermon on this yesterday morning from Dr. Lawson, certainly. But if you go back to the beginning of chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 6, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise that are regarded as descendants. So Paul, picking up the same idea of being a child of God, links it to remnant terminology. Paul and John in that way are aligned in their understanding that to become a child of God, to be adopted or become a son of God, is linked to being part of the remnant. Now, in addition to this chiastic presentation in the prologue, another way that John focuses on this promise of adoption or sonship. Now, the reason I stick with the word adoption is because son is reserved for Jesus in the Gospel of John. Whereas children, child, little children, for example, that is reserved for believers. But generally speaking, if you look at the entire New Testament theology, you are looking at sonship, adoption, and so on. Well, John features this promise not simply as part of the chiastic presentation, the prologue, but he also does this with the inclusio. So an inclusio refers to something that appears at the beginning and at the end of a work, a book, paragraph, for example, a letter, and so on. So here it appears in the beginning of the book, but this adoption language also appears at the end of the gospel. So if you look at chapter 20, for example, in verse 17, when Jesus is speaking to Mary, he says, Jesus said to her in verse 17, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God, and your God. So this is the first time Jesus calls his disciples, brothers, and God their father, directly because the cross has been accomplished. If you look at chapter 21, in verse 5, when now Jesus is with his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, he says to them in verse 5, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. So John doesn't have children as a term, as an idea, appear too often, in the gospel, but it does appear at the beginning and at the end. In other words, this is the inclusio of the gospel that is trying to focus us onto this promise, that to be a believer is to then be regarded as a child of God. Now, that's the whole gospel. We also know that the gospel is divided into the public ministry of Jesus and the private ministry of Jesus, right? So the public ministry is the first 12 chapters, the, the public ministry, the private ministry is chapters 13 through 21, can go through 17 as the farewell discourse, and then you have the passion and the crucifixion and the resurrection. But if you look at the public ministry of Jesus, we talked about the opening of that in the prologue, that there's a promise of being a child of God. Go to chapter 12, the closing of the public ministry of Jesus, and if you look at verse 36, right in the middle of the verse, Jesus, it's the narrator says, John says, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. So this is the closing of the public ministry of Jesus. But right before he hides himself from the people, verse 36 says, while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. Again, 
adoption terminology. It's different, not child of God, but it is a son of the light. And you understand that in that era, to be a son of the light is to be affiliated with God rather than a son of darkness. So the imagery is consistent. So whether it's John opening and closing the gospel with this promise of being a child of God to those who believe, or the public ministry of Jesus, again, opens and closes with this promise to those who believe they become part of the family of God. They are adopted. Now, John also opens the gospel with the light imagery, right? In chapter 1, verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And of course, verse 12 connects it to belief. So light imagery, belief discussion, being a child of God appears in the beginning and appears at the end of the public ministry of Jesus. All to say, John is using this literary device, inclusio, to get our attention onto this promise that this remnant receives a special promise that is a promise of becoming a child of God. Now, we know there's a transition that takes place because in chapter 13, verse 1, the private ministry begins in this way. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own. So now we just heard his own back in chapter 1. He reintroduces that idea of his own, but now his own is no longer ethnic Israel. His his own, in verse 1, is now focused specifically on his disciples. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Even that statement, who were in the world, suggests they're no longer in the world. That becomes very explicit in chapter 17. That I took, you took him out of the world. You've given them to me. But this is a signal telling us that his own is a phrase that John is using to create remnant theology. Yes, there was ethnic Israel, but now we're going to focus on this remnant. But as John transitions from his own to his own, guess what passage he puts right in the middle? Isaiah 6. The remnant passage of the Old Testament. Pastor John talked about it in his Q&A. So go back to the end of chapter 12. And as John is now, as a narrator, is trying to explain why Jesus' offer of eternal life was rejected. He explains it by quoting Isaiah. So look at verse 37 of chapter 12. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that's Isaiah 53 verse 1. And then he shifts over to Isaiah 6. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So now you have this explanation, a theological explanation, of shifting from the public ministry, the invitation to all, his own, to come to Christ and become sons of the light, become children of God, follow the light and never walk in darkness. That's a few verses later. A shift happens with a theological explanation from Isaiah chapter 6, the passage that tells us, as Pastor John reminded us, how long do I keep preaching? Until the remnant, the stump, the holy stump, the holy seed. 
So you have this Johannine use drenching this discussion in Old Testament prophecy. You could also expand a little bit and talk about even how he uses the love language in the Gospel of John. So John 3.16, we know the love of God is focused on the world, right? It's broad. But in chapter 13, verse 1, the love language, agape again, you can't say, well, maybe John 3.16 is phileo. It's liking the world, not loving the world, right? Some people make that distinction, just FYI. Those terms are interchangeable in the Gospel of John. But he does say something unique in chapter 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So now there is a qualifier on the kind of love that he extended to his own disciples. Because, as chapter 15, verse 19 will tell us, he chose them out of the world, right in the middle of the verse. I chose you out of the world, therefore, because of this, the world hates you. If you look at chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your name. I'm sorry, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. So now there's a separation that is implied here that Jesus is asking and is praying for unique protection, rooted in love. I'm sure you know this, that 13.1, 17.26 begins and ends with love. The majority of the uses of the, words, of the word love, agape, is in the farewell discourse in the entire gospel. So you know those statistics, but here the expression of this love is to protect them in the world. Back in chapter 6, at the very end, in, chapter seven, in verse 70, Jesus did say, Did I myself not choose you, and yet one of you will ultimately betray me? In chapter 13, verse 18, he does say, I know whom I have chosen. In verse 16 of chapter 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So there's multiple places, whether it's chapter 6 or 13 or 15 or 17, this element of choosing is introduced specific for his disciples. Again, taking us back to this remnant idea that there's a selection that's taken place by Jesus, sometimes connected to his love, a unique love, and then sometimes coming with a promise. Now, this promise of adoption isn't limited to Jews, which takes us to our second aspect, and that is there is a focus on the regathering of the remnant. This promise of adoption is extended globally. So go to chapter 11. At the very end of chapter 11, beginning in verse 47, this is right after the resurrection of Lazarus. There's a council meeting that takes place with the chief priests and the Pharisees. And so in verse 47, they convene a council and they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. What a way to start a speech. You're so ignorant, all of you. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for that one man would die for the people and that the, then that the whole nation 
not perish. Now, he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he may also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So now we do have a more direct way to see remnant theology, right? There's now the gathering of the people of God labeled as children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the implication by a global promise. It's not just limited to the ethnic Israel that was the focus of Jesus' ministry. If you remember back in chapter 10, verse 16, this same promise rings true. I have other sheep. Again, the implication is that there are now there are Gentiles who are going to have to get into the fold, and they will be one flock with one shepherd. So now there's this promise of the regathering of the people of God globally under one shepherd into one flock, and they will be called children of God. Certainly we're talking about the diaspora. By the time this was written, by the time Jesus came, Israel had been in exile or dispersed in the Roman Empire for 400 years, right? Under Hellenism specifically. Yeah, the exile happened back in 586 B.C., and many came back, but not all did. And so you almost have, well, you have six centuries of the exile for certain individuals. But really, the Hellenistic influence of the Roman Empire began with Alexander the Great and his successors. So now you have this expectation that we are talking about the diaspora uh, of the Jews in the Roman Empire. And these are the ones that Jesus will be gathering. But the most direct passage where he's picking up this language is Ezekiel chapter 34. You have to see this in Ezekiel 34. So go to Ezekiel. You know, it's one of those two key passages on shepherding, Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, and we'll look at both. But in chapter 34, Ezekiel deploys four different words to describe the scattering of the sheep. Four different words. And so in verse 4 and in verse 16, you have one term right in the middle. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, here it is, you have not brought back. The scattered. And the meaning of this term is those who are prone to wonder. That's the emphasis of this specific Hebrew term. Skip to verse 16. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered. Those who are prone to wonder. Bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with the judgment. So you've got this first introduction. But then in verse 6, the only appearance of this specific term is those who just stray. My flock wandered through all the mountains, and on every hill my flock was scattered. So that first wonder, that's really the word for straying, over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. In verse 12, he uses another term that really means to be sprinkled around. As a shepherd cares for the herd in a day when he is among those who have been sprinkled, the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the peoples to which they were scattered. A different term, on a cloudy and gloomy day. That, verse, that, that term in verse 12 appears back in verse 5, verse 6, and in verse 21. And that is just a general term for scattering. 
So in order to create more of a variety and I think a uniqueness and nuance with each of these different terms, the prophet Ezekiel gives us this image of the sheep being scattered. But in verse 15, God says, I will feed my flock and I will lead them. I will lead them to rest. God is the one who takes the initiative. In verse 11, behold, I myself, that's pretty emphatic, will search for my sheep and seek them out. So John is picking up this imagery of the scattering of the sheep globally that ultimately have to become one flock from Ezekiel chapter 34. And even the idea of one sheep, my sheep, remember this in John 10, my sheep, hear my voice. It comes from this chapter and only Jeremiah 23. Those are the only two places in the Bible you'll find that terminology of my sheep. And so John is clearly wants, wants to take us back because in Ezekiel 34, 15 times God says, my sheep, my flock. You couldn't be more emphatic and you can't miss that. And so John takes that from Ezekiel 34 and says, this is God's flock. And Jesus is going to die for this flock. So then if you do go back to John chapter 10, you can see how John is leaning on Ezekiel as he tries to explain that there is this sheep, this flock. So in verse 3, he says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Again, possessiveness implied here. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I think it's an anaphoric use of the article. refers back to this my sheep idea. In verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. In verse 15, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. So again, the imagery of possessiveness and ownership and a relationship in John 10, takes us all the way back to Ezekiel 34. And the promise in verse 16 is there's going to be one shepherd. And that comes from Ezekiel 34, verse 24. Ezekiel 34, verse 24, I will set over them one shepherd. My servant David, he will feed them. He will feed them himself and will be their shepherd. And that is repeated in chapter 37, verse 24 as well. A promise again of one shepherd. So now you have this promise of the regathering of the sheep that are scattered to be under one shepherd. But the way that will happen is through the redemption of the flock. And we already saw some of these passages where the regathering is paired up with the redemption of the flock. So if you look back to the end of chapter 11, for example, the entire context of the promise in verse 52, one children of God that are scattered abroad, is the context is to kill Jesus, right? We're talking about death. Caiaphas' prophecy here. So you can't miss that, that the whole thing is drenched in this conversation about the killing of Jesus. And you go back to chapter 10, well, we know what chapter 10 is all about, right? So you can see that specifically in verse 11. I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So everything we saw in chapter 10 is connected to Jesus voluntarily laying down his life. Verse 15 says that, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to do that. This commandment I received from my Father. So all the promises about the regathering and to become a child of God is linked up with the death of Jesus Christ. And the culmination of this, and maybe a better way of saying it, is the the beginning of the fulfillment is in chapter 12. So look at 12.20. There were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. In verse 27, now my soul has become troubled, and what will I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then verse 32, and if I am lifted up on the earth or from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. So the arrival of the Greeks, now think about the imagery of scattering and the sheep that are not of this fold. You have to keep that in mind when you read that verse. As they show up to see Jesus and request a private meeting with him, that triggers the fulfillment of the hour. Because if you've been reading your Gospel of John, it keeps saying the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come, the hour is not yet. Over and over and over, there are eight references to the hour in the Gospel of John. And then all of a sudden, the hour has come. So you can see the connection that the hour, of course, is the hour of redemption, the hour of glorification by crucifixion, and ultimately taking him back to glory, and more glory, as we know from Philippians 2 and Hebrews 12. But here, the connection is the hour has come because the sheep, the other sheep, who are trying to get into the fold, that triggers the redemption that will be required to accomplish this single flock idea that's john's message is that in order for the remnant to enter the full the flock under one shepherd redemption has to take place and then this shepherd as part of his care is protecting the remnant not only does he give up his life for the remnant but he's one who will be the protector of the remnant i think matthew 936 is one of those most Precious verses expressing the care of Christ for people. Seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And so you have the heart of Christ extended to the people that are shepherdless. But of course, in the Gospel of John, the imagery of protection comes in chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. 10, 27, and 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We have the same purpose, the same mission, to protect the sheep. 
So you have this image adopted from Psalm 95, verse 7. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So redemption again is implied here, right? If you hear his voice, my sheep hear my voice, verse 27. They're in my hand. There's protection. Psalm 95, 7 is all over this little passage that we've memorized and we love and we use to defend Calvinistic theology, right? Nobody slips through the fingers. But the promise here is that God and Christ, the Father and the Son, will protect the flock. They offer eternal life, that's verse 28, a life in verse 10 that is abundant, fully satisfying, implying ultimately eternal life, an eternal relationship with Christ. This idea of abundance also takes us back to Ezekiel 34, because in verse 14, God says, I will feed them with good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest. Verse 26, I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. So yes, this is fulfilled ultimately in the millennial kingdom. When we do have one shepherd, one flock, under the the reign of King Jesus, but the promise is extended to those who are not of the ethnic Israel, as we see in the Gospel of John. And if you take now for just a few minutes, go to Jeremiah 23. And in Jeremiah 23, he has a similar imagery that he wants to extend of this protective and caring shepherd. Verse 1 says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, or Yahweh God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them, because I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to the pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply." I will raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor will be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up David, a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness." In verse 8, as the Lord lives, who brought up the, and led back the descendants of the house of Israel from the north land and from all of the countries where I had driven them, they will live on their own soil. Certainly the final fulfillment is the millennial kingdom. That is what we believe here. That's the premillennial conviction. But the idea of a caring shepherd is demonstrated here through and through. They scattered them, I'm going to bring them back. They aim to destroy them, I'm going to care for them. So whether it's Ezekiel 34 or Jeremiah 23, God's care and affection for his sheep is clearly demonstrated. These are my sheep, and I will protect them. And of course, we read so many verses in chapter 10 of John. He'll feed, he'll lead, he'll call, he'll protect. Now, the way John ends, as Pastor John briefly mentioned in the Q&A, is in chapter 21. 
which directly applies to us men. When the conversation between Jesus and Peter takes place in chapter 21, verses 15, all the way down to verse 19, three times, right? He asks him, do you love me? And his response is yes. And Jesus' response in verse 15 is, so tend my lambs. In verse 16, if he affirmatively responds, yes, I do love you, shepherd my sheep. And in verse 17, again, tend my sheep. And then in verse 19, he says, follow me. The connection here is that back in chapter 13, Peter promised to be willing to follow Jesus all the way to death. And now here in chapter 21, in verse 18, Jesus prophesies, you will fulfill that promise. You failed back in chapter 18, but you will ultimately keep that promise. And it'll happen against your wish, and it'll happen in the future. Until then, verse 19, follow me. But as you follow me, your responsibility is what? Tend my sheep, fed my sh- feed my sheep, tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep. That's the application to us is that this good shepherd is now using us to protect his flock. That's Acts 20, right? The wolves will come. And our responsibility is to protect God's flock. I loved what Pastor John said. He set me up really good for this little message because it's the preciousness of the flock. But I hope you saw it in 15 different ways. God keeps saying, my flock, my flock, my flock. And the uniqueness that only Jeremiah and Ezekiel pick up that language has to scream at us that it's in the context of shepherding. It's not just general language about Israel. No, it's specifically that God loves his people and then we as the Gentiles are brought in to participate in this future promise and in the protection. So of course there is soteriological implications in chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Yes, there is a protection. Nobody slips through. We will arrive at eternal uh, at resurrection. We'll get there. John, John 6 is very clear about that. But also there's this application that we are protected by our shepherd. To what end? That's our final point. There is a purpose for this remnant or John's purpose of the remnant. And it's quite simple. Also, picking up from Ezekiel 34, the purpose, and I'll read Ezekiel 34 first. And if you look at verse 27, Ezekiel 34, 27. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 30. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. I'm with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. So the ultimate purpose of God saying, my sheep, the scattered I will bring back, I will find them, I will feed them, I will shepherd them, is in that phrase, so that they will know. A saying that appears 70 times in Ezekiel. That's the whole point. It's the shepherding, the redemption, the regathering, is so that people would ultimately understand who God is. That I am the Lord. And so John picks up similar terminology. And so John uses oida 84 times, ginosko 63 times again. I would argue both of those, those two terms in the Greek are synonymous, interchangeable in the Gospel of John. I can send you a chart if you're interested in that analysis. 
But even as John begins his gospel back in chapter 1, the very end of the prologue, says this about the purpose of the coming or the incarnation of the Logos. No one has seen God at any time in chapter 1, verse 18. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's a different term that's not to know, but the meaning is to explain God, to make him known. Because as Jesus ultimately, in chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, concludes his work, he says in verse 2, 17, 2, Even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And we read this already. This is eternal life to know. To know the Father, to know the Son. Verse 4 says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What is that work? A couple of references for you. 854, 1331, 1413, 1510, 829. It's the work of making God known. Now, Father, verse 5, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And then if you look at verse 26, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So if Jesus is saying, this is the fulfillment of my job, my responsibility, my work on this earth to make your name known to those whom you have given me, do you see remnant implications there? To those whom you have given me from the world? There's remnant ideas again even in that statement. But the purpose is so that they would know your name. Again, taking us back to Ezekiel chapter 34. And in John 10, my sheep know my voice. They hear, they follow, they know my voice. So even there in that great chapter on the good shepherd, it all revolves around knowing, knowing him. To what extent? Well, if you look at verse 25 of chapter 10. In verse 24, there's this climactic conflict the jews finally say to him they surround him and they said how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the christ just tell us plainly jesus answers them i told you and you don't believe me the works that i do in my father's name these testify of me but because you do not because you do not believe because you're not of my sheep then if you skip down to verse 37, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know, and the same terminology, ginosko, ginosko, continue knowing that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So the knowledge that he is presenting as part of eternal life language, as part of confessing that he is the anointed one, as part of confessing his deity in verses 30 and to 36, is that you would know continuously that I have a unique relationship with the Father, an abiding relationship with the Father. That's John's promise, and that is really the purpose of the remnant. Whether it's in the Old Testament, the knowledge of God is the ultimate purpose for the remnant. 
And then John picks that up and says, this is the ultimate purpose for this remnant, this ongoing knowledge of the relationship between the Father and the Son that takes us into the future, and that is a result of possessing eternal life. Well, ultimately, this culminates in this one shepherd imagery that we saw in Ezekiel 34 and also in Ezekiel 37. But as a final thought, thus this shepherd is a royal figure. He's a royal shepherd. We saw some of that already. I will set a prince over them. Right? I read that verse back in Ezekiel 34. But John picks up the same imagery of a royal shepherd because the way he introduces Jesus from the very beginning in chapter 1, in the conversation between Nathaniel and Jesus in verse 49 of chapter 1, Nathaniel confesses, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. That comes from Zephaniah 3.15. You are the king of Israel. In chapter 3, the conversation with Nicodemus is all about the kingdom. So in chapter 3, it's about entering the kingdom of God. But if you fast forward to chapter 18, when Pilate and Jesus are talking about the kingdom, it's about my kingdom. There's been a shift and a transfer that's taken place in the Gospel of John as the narrative develops that it starts out with God's kingdom and it ends with Jesus' kingdom. But my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my soldiers, that's the actual term, will fight for me. And so John is introducing consistently the portrait of Christ as the one who has a kingdom and the one who is the king. In chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, in verses 14 and 15, the language is forceful, it's aggressive. They attempted to take him by force, verse 15, to make him king. In chapter 12, verses 13 through 15, in the triumphal entry, as Jesus rides in on a donkey, symbolic of the ancient kings of Israel also riding in on a donkey, the declaration is that, Behold, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So now you have this affirmation from the crowds as he rides into Jerusalem. This is the King of Israel. Jesus affirms that to Pilate. He is the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. In chapter 19, verse 14, Pilate presents him. Behold your king. So kingship imagery doesn't end. It continues all the way until the crucifixion. But really the connection that we must make is between chapter 10 and chapter 15. Because in chapter 10 you have the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So now the language of lordship is used. Commissioning is suggested in verse 16. I chose you, you didn't choose me. I appointed you, I commissioned you to go and bear fruit. So there's a disparity in this relationship. Yes, we're friends, but the disparity is retained. I have the right to still demand that you call me Lord and that you do what I'm telling you to do and specifically go and bear fruit. Obedience is expected, sending is implied. So whatever kind of friendship this is, isn't simple parity. 
there's a social disparity in this relationship. And the way to understand it is to say the only other place where Jesus talks about laying down his life is in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life. So now, because there was this understanding by the Roman emperors, by the pharaohs, by the Jewish leaders, that we are the shepherds of the people in our country. And now Jesus takes that imagery. He's a shepherd, certainly coming from the Old Testament, as I already mentioned and demonstrated. But also he's saying, yes, there are Egyptian shepherds, pharaohs. Roman Caesars calling themselves shepherds of the Roman people. But they're not laying down their life for the people. I'm the good shepherd who will actually do that. So now taking us back to Ezekiel 34, I will set over them one shepherd, a prince. We are talking about a royal figure of this this shepherd who will have one flock. And ultimately, the fulfillment of all this is in the millennial kingdom. So I want to make sure that as you think about the remnant theology, you have these five ideas in front of you. And the ultimate purpose is so that they would know. And I'll just finish with Isaiah 40, 9 through 11. I'll skip this one. You can look at this passage on your own. Read Revelation 7, 7 through 17 at some point, and you'll see all of these ideas come together. This is the remnant worshiping the Lamb, who's led them, who's fed them, and who's now being worshipped as the King of Kings. But Isaiah 40 also has a similar idea. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord Yahweh will come with strength, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Do you know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And you know how that ends, that I am the Lord. And there is, again, this imagery of God coming in as the shepherd who cares ultimately so that we would know that he is the only God. So as you go back and reread the Gospel of John, I hope seeing some of these principles will allow you to look at the remnant idea from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 21, coming together as John is trying to lean back on Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and a few other passages to say this is the good shepherd. It's not simply Jesus is a nice shepherd from Psalm 23. It's more than Psalm 23. Let me pray for us as we continue to Worship this shepherd. Lord God, remind us that you are the good shepherd and we want to be your under shepherds, faithfully protecting, feeding, shepherding, and caring for your flock with the same compassion that you have for each of us. I pray for this conference as we continue in it that we would continue to be encouraged to love your people and to love you. Amen.